Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. A lot of leaders in fraud or just fraud fighters in general are pretty humble. And so sometimes I have a hard time identifying new guests because a lot of people don't want to volunteer themselves. They don't think they have a lot to share or I, I don't know what. But so often I'm reaching out to people saying, hey, I heard you speak at this event or I've known you for a long time and I know you're good at speaking at, about this, etc. And for today's guest, a mutual friend who heard my guest speak on a merchant roundtable several months ago, gave me a heads up and said, hey, I really think you should meet Rob McCall at Uphold. He has a lot of really good experience and he's a really good people leader. And I think you should have him on the podcast. So when we were both at the Merchant Risk Council conference in March in Las Vegas, I quickly met him and just said, hey, I hear you would be awesome on the podcast. I would love to have you on. I'll touch base with you after the event. And then we kind of both, I don't even know if I saw him again because that event is so crazy. And anyone who's been there for that week understands. (laughs) But then I also got to meet two of the more senior leaders on his team and they were just as enthusiastic about how great of a leader Rob has been for them and how passionate about fraud fighting and strategy and getting all the right pieces in place and layers within our risk stack and within people, et cetera, that Rob was. And it made me even more excited to have him on the podcast. But I think I've admitted before that between my ADHD and the 27 things that I feel like I'm doing on a daily basis, I'm not the best at reaching back out to people, whether it's about the podcast or other things. I'm really trying hard and I'm hopefully getting an assistant soon, which should really help. But I finally reached back out to Rob a couple of weeks ago, and I am so grateful that he took some time to speak with me for today's episode. Rob has been in the anti-fraud space for over 15 years. And at each position, he's been in a different area of fraud prevention. So he started out on the banking side of fraud for several years. He then moved to e-commerce at HSN as a manager. And he's been at Uphold for the last four years, first as a manager and then as a director. And he'll talk a little bit about that transition and just some of the things he learned out of that that I think will be really fascinating for a lot of people. He really has so much knowledge. Like when we spoke on the pre-interview call, I realized pretty quickly that we could easily talk about three episodes worth on different topics that he really understands in a way that not as many people I talk to have really talked about those topics before and they're ones that are important. And so I'm hoping that he will be willing to come back soon to talk and deep dive into a couple more of those topics because I think that'll be super fascinating. But we did cover a lot on today's episode that I know you will enjoy listening to. First, we got to learn, or I got to learn, and you will get to learn more about how he got started in fraud. 
I know from talking to a lot of you that that is something that you really enjoy about all of my interviews is hearing how each person kind of fell into fraud prevention or detection on accident, but then why they stay on purpose and why a job turns into a career. I think it's something that we all can relate to in a lot of ways, but it's also just really fascinating to know how we all got into this industry that isn't exactly on a placement test from your high school or university guidance counselor. It's not really on a list of jobs that everyone knows about. So Rob also shared some details on what makes Uphold's business model unique, especially in the fraud landscape, what the transition from e-commerce to crypto was like, and some of the common fraud and scam schemes that they see targeting their customers. One of the more specific stories he shared was actually about a victim that he had just talked to the day we recorded our conversation, and it inspired one of the topics for this coming Thursday's episode. It was very topical, and I think it's important for everyone to know about because it can actually impact any e-commerce company or any company that has remote positions, actually, not just in the crypto space. So I also asked Rob to share more about his transition from fraud manager to fraud director. I don't think I've really dove into the specifics and differences between role levels within a fraud fighting organization very much. And Rob did a really good job of sharing the nuances of this role and how it differs from management. And especially as a lot of fraud managers are considering the next level in their career, Rob provides some great advice and anecdotes from his own transition. He also provides core philosophies and values as a people leader. And it was important to me to ask him that because I know some of the members of his team and how very loyal and how much they look up to him they are. So that there are a lot of great people managers within the fraud landscape. We're all at different levels, so it's always good to hear from everyone. But I'm looking forward to you hearing this fantastic conversation, and I'd love to hear what you learned. If there's a specific question or topic that you'd like for Rob to talk about the next time he stops by, let me know because I plan on it. And he did say at the end of this, and I believe it's recorded, that he's willing to come back. So <laughs> I'm just going to count on it. With that, I'm going to let you listen in on my conversation today with Rob McCall, and I'll look forward to speaking with you on Thursday. Welcome back to the Fraudology Podcast. I am so happy to get to welcome Rob McCall. Thank you. Yeah, I've been uh, been a fan of this podcast for, for quite a bit now, so it's definitely nice to be part of it now. I am really happy about that. You know, we first met at the Merger Risk Council conference in this last March and somebody that we had know in common kind of put the bug in my ear and said, I think Rob McCall would be really good on the podcast. And I own it 100 percent. There's I have a list of people that I want to reach out to to book and, and get on the podcast. And sometimes I just don't get around to it. But you have been on that list for several months and I'm so grateful that you agreed to come on and talk with us. And I'm a fan of yours as well as your teams. I've gotten to meet a few of them and know that they think highly of you and your leadership. And I also very much appreciate that they enjoy the podcast too. Thank you for having me. So 
you know how this goes. I think really the way I like to start things is to talk about how you got started in fraud. We all have different paths. And I know from people that listen often that they love learning just the different ways that we all get into this. So how did you get started in online fraud prevention? It's funny you say the to learn about it because I always ask that about applicants when I'm interviewing them hmm. and, and looking to hire them because I'm just as curious as well. Yeah. And I honestly am no different than a lot of other people where I came into it by accident. You know, it was looking for a job while in college and needed something that was around hours in my classes. So I began working at, at a company at a fraud prevention for FIS. You know, they're a department that's a, a company that provides banking solutions. So it was basically just hired to start taking phone calls for, for customers with suspect activity on their cards and also reviewing between calls, reviewing their transaction activity to, to try and find suspicious patterns and restrict or, or take necessary action. So yeah, just it turned in from just a, a regular job just to, to make some money and grew into a career. <laughs> It's a familiar story for a lot of us, but we still, the more of the detailed piece, right? Like, how did we, I think that there, it builds camaraderie to hear, oh yeah, me too. But also there are newer people to fraud listening that are always wondering that because they want to get into it too, right? So it's kind of that, that two-sided. And so at FIS, were you more on like the merchant side or the consumer banking side or which part of fraud did you get started in? So it was on the, the banking piece where... You know, so you're monitoring, you know, all of the, the customers of FIS were banks themselves. We were handling all of their customers. They're monitoring their credit card activity. So you're using those systems just to flag for suspicious activity, usage coming out of some someplace you didn't know, but also balancing to make sure that during the holidays, their cards don't get declined because they have excessive spending. So oh. it's, you know, a lot of that fun piece. But so, yeah, just talking with customers because it was in the call center type environment. Yeah. So you're not only reviewing the transactions, but then you're also taking calls of the customers who you've either already reached out to or they, you know, your automated system has declined them in some capacity. So they're reaching out to you and, and go, or they're just reporting that they've had fraud. So it's all of those pieces. And it was an interesting first step into fraud. Yeah. Uh, that's why I asked, because I'm a very firm believer that the foundation, how we get into fraud will continue and all of the experiences and careers we have will continue to inform where we are now. And if you get started on another side of it, for me, it was merchant processing. For you, it's consumer banking. And then you go to e-commerce or fintech or marketplaces, that type of thing. You still have that instilled in you, those customer experiences or what the bank does in this case or that kind of thing. And I think it's always fascinating. But so just like with all of us, you did fall into it on accident, but stay on purpose. So what was it about fraud that made you decide to turn it into a career? And, you know, it started out being a combination of the investigation and helping others and just finding that I was pretty good at it. Um, yeah. You know, I just remember early on in, in my career, constantly wanting to share stories of speaking with customers and preventing fraud for customers and how happy they were, how thankful they were. So obviously you have that that kind of reward factor from there. But, you know, then also simultaneously knowing when you're doing the review for fraud, that when you see fraud and find it and then having the ability to stop it, take the actions to prevent those kind of losses for, for customers. 
prevent that impact, right? Like prevent exactly. those future calls and all of that that can really ruin a banking customer or any customer's day or week or month, depending on the impact. Yep. You know, just more of that was added over the years as, as I've become more and more involved in fraud. So what I now love the most is digging into the numbers and the analysis piece of it, but doing so with the team and brainstorming, just that collaborative effort of working with other fraud fighters to come up with ways to prevent fraud and help your company. So we, in a prior job, we would meet weekly. A few of the high level members on the team, we just sat in a room on a weekly basis for a couple hours, looking through the data and trying to just see how can we tweak our rules? How can we continue to stay ahead of the growing fraud patterns? That was one of the most enjoyable parts of the week is doing that kind of brain story. And mm. just, it's, it's a little bit of that, that fraud nerve behavior. But, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I always say there's magic when different fraud fighters come together and, and talk about specific problems, whether that is internal to a company. And obviously you get into a lot more of the weeds and the details of specific orders and specific tactics when that's the case or externally with your peers. Like both of those things to me are magic because oftentimes you'll go into that thinking one thing and then you learn from each other from different experiences and all of that. And whether it's being able to identify something new or come up with a creative solution or strategy or process, it's just, it, it's nerdy, but in the best of ways, in my opinion, of course I'm jaded, but, <laughs> but so you, you transitioned from FIA into more traditional e-commerce. Was HSN the next stop after FIS? Yes, yeah. The home shopping, shopping network. network. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what were just a couple of the, the highlights of, of that time or what you learned there? Because I would assume it's much more high volume. It's e-commerce directly. You're looking at things differently, but still similar DNA of the way you do things. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, it's the same kind of DNA where you're looking for those anomalies, those Mm -hmm. red flags. Yeah. You're just adding into the aspect of, I guess the biggest thing would be, you know, the shipping of goods instead of just Mm -hmm. looking at a customer's card transaction and their history and their spinning pattern. Now you're looking at all of your customers, looking at how those transactions, where's the the most likely point of fraud and where the right friction needs to be and using the extra indicators like where the product is shipping and all of those, you know, the payment types that they're using, all of that plays into it. So, you know, that was also my first working with rule sets and building an actual fraud rule set and the rules that go into it and making sure that everything that goes into fine tuning all of that. I I feel like that's always fun, but challenging a little bit when you go from one side of fraud, whether it's banking to e-commerce or e-commerce to banking or just different business models within one of those two things, finding similarities as well as the differences and continuing to learn. And I know that at that scale too, that was probably a great training ground, so to speak. And I, you know, I know some of the leaders that you worked for during that time and, and we both think highly of them and know that we ran a, a pretty tight ship, especially during that time as well. So I'm sure you got to learn a lot from them as you worked your way up within that organization as well. Definitely learned a lot there. Like you said, there was a lot of great leaders there that, that taught me not just a good amount of how to handle fraud review, but just growing as a leader in general. It was a, it was a really fun experience. 
And then as we go through your career in uh, November of 2018, you went to a fintech startup as I think their first fraud prevention manager, right? There wasn't a program in place. Correct. So you are a guy who loves a challenge. I do too. I always say building and sustaining a fraud team from scratch is not for the faint of heart. But had I not had that experience in my career, I couldn't do or know half the things that I do now. Like you just learn so much. So you've been at a hold for that long and in the crypto space. And so the first question I wanted to ask around that is just how is it different from traditional e-commerce fraud prevention and or from the banking side? You know, you each path or each career move you've made, it's been a little bit different, a different space, which I think is great because you just keep, you know, building your portfolio of different, you know, skills and, and knowledge and all that. But why did you decide to make that move from fraud prevention to traditional e-commerce? And then what are just a couple of the, I'm sure we could spend a whole hour talking about all the differences. You know, what are some of the differences that have stood out to you? Yeah, so I guess the reason for the change, it really just, like you said, it presented a great opportunity to continue to progress my career. So just to be able to move with just the growth and move to the next level, but also experience that other side of fraud prevention, just to have a another viewpoint of how fraud can take place and what are the right tactics to prevent it. And just, I guess, continue to add extra tools to my tool belt there. So speaking of crypto, I don't know, I feel like a crypto noob, so to speak. I don't know if anyone uses that word anymore, but just, I don't know as much as I'd like to, but I sure try. So, you know, just kind of understanding a little bit more about Uphold specifically, the crypto space is pretty broad with like many different players, such as crypto wallets and exchanges and brokerages and trading platforms. And some companies are only one of those, some are a mixture. Where does Uphold fit in the cryptoverse? And what is the general business model or the ways that consumers utilize your company? Yeah, so... With Uphold, we marketed our product as anything to anything, meaning our platform, you can take any asset you hold, whether it be in fiat or crypto or even some U.S. equities or precious metals, and you can trade them to anything else we offer. So you fund your account with $100, you can immediately take that and move it into Bitcoin. You can buy Bitcoin with that and then immediately take that and purchase an equity with it or just essentially move it in any direction for all of those that we offer within just a matter of seconds. So it's, it's really kind of an interesting concept from that perspective, but we also allow our users to send any of those funds to other users in a a peer-to-peer capacity. Yeah. And we also offer a debit card. So you can be holding Bitcoin and still go and actually go to your Starbucks and spend, buy a coffee with Bitcoin there. And we offer products for businesses as well to essentially run your business with, you know, using Uphold for payments and everything. So 200 plus different currencies and, and then 50 different stocks that we offer. So there's a lot that we we handle. Wow. Over 250 just currencies. So you're, you know, are you international then as well? You're processing internationally or domestically and allowing people to change currencies or how does that piece work? Yes. Yeah. International. So we're, we're onboard fiat. So we accept customers credit or debit cards, the ACH payments, faster payments, SEPA, wire transfers. You can fund your account just solely with crypto from, from any other platform. Yeah. Honestly. And obviously still looking to expand even further beyond that. How that I'm sure everyone listening is 
oh my gosh, that sounds like a fraud nightmare. You know, we know that a lot of times we'll look at a business model from our perspective and think of all the ways that somebody can take advantage of it. But I can also see how that is a really cool service for a lot of consumers as well. Whether you're dabbling into some kind of cryptocurrency or, you know, wanting to hold them or use them or whatever and transfer things, I can see it both ways, obviously. So not only do you manage the systems and the processes and the team responsible for identifying and preventing risk at Apple, you also selected or created those systems and processes indeed for the department, right? You started everything. I know, like I said, I know this is not easy, but it's also really fun because it's a puzzle, right? And sometimes when you have a blank plate, you can put in the basic structure and then adjust accordingly. But what was that transition like? And what advice would you give to anyone else in a similar position of building a fraud department from scratch, especially for a new business model when you don't totally know what to expect? It was a learning experience. Yeah. And it, it definitely had its fair share of growing pains throughout it. Well, when I first started, we were reviewing transactions off of spreadsheets and filtering by the details. So, and you can, coming from a place where we had more of an automated role set, that was just, I felt like I had stepped back several years. <laughs> so that was you know, definitely a, a quick change that we, we had to, to try and make uh, was mm-hmm. to make things a little bit more, yeah, I guess, automated. You know, it was only me internally when we and a, and a small outsource team when I first started started. So fraud was missed. It wasn't pretty. We definitely had our bumps along the way. So I guess the advice I can give because of that would be make sure your voice is heard. If you're the primary point of contact on the fraud matters, you need to make sure you have everyone's ear and everyone knows about the pains you're experiencing in your department and what you foresee coming down the pipeline. I think that's the biggest thing that I had to learn the hard way was I actually still have to remind myself about that every now and then is just make sure everyone within the business understands the challenges and the fraud risk that that could be coming because they're relying on you. You're If you're heading up that, and even if you're the one of the, the sole person in the apartment, they're relying on you to be looking at that and to let them know. Yeah, I think if that is a struggle for a lot of people, I mean, it certainly was for me for a long time, finding my voice, but also finding the right way to explain those things, because I think there is such a difference between the way that fraud fighters communicate with each other. And there's just like this common understanding. So we have a shorthand and we all understand the risks, right? We understand the gravity, but then externally out of that department, they're looking at other parts of the business. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they just assume, oh, fraud must come in blinking lights and all you're doing is pressing a button here or there and you know it's easy and I do think that it is so I agree with you it's so important to be communicative but not too much right so it's like finding that balance not telling them all the details because they don't care I made that mistake a few times not telling like the most salacious stories and having them think that's all that there is you know like finding this right that I had to be more analytical than anecdotal and all those things but I do think that it's a really important skill that anyone who wants to go into management, the people leadership piece is so important, but then so is kind of the business management piece, managing expectations, being 
communicative and transparent in, hey, we're seeing this risk down the line. This is what it could happen. Or if we don't put something else in place, this is what's going to happen. That kind of thing. Is there any tips that you've found in communicating outside of the business that you would pass on? You know, is there something that you've found, whether it having kind of a baseline couple slides that you share with different departments before going into details or the way that you communicate with them? Or are you sharing metrics and KPIs on a regular basis? or the way they explain things? Are you finding that you don't need to be like rooted in the data or what's, you know, what's your approach to that? Yeah, I think it's trying to finding that balance of making sure everyone is aware of the data, but not becoming that constant bother where they start to tune you out. So it's all balance. Exactly. Yeah. So The main thing what I try to do is keep it high level of not constantly bombard with, okay, this is where we're at for this this week. This is where we're at for the month, especially if we're well within our rates are where we're comfortable as a Mm -hmm. company. Just maybe highlight, especially if it's on a reoccurring basis, highlight some risk and something to be aware of that 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 we can pinpoint again, not over inundate them with with a bunch of data for them to comb through. It's definitely a skill and obviously different leaders like different things, but I think you're absolutely right. There's a balance between making sure that they are confident that the ship is being manned and and that things are in the right place and that you are informing them when they need to be informed, but not continually them everything because they will tune you out. I know for me, I also learned not to say no all the time. Really choose your battles and where you're you're going to draw the line because if you say no to every you know new marketing proposal or new proposed marketing strategy or every new business model, like you're just not going to get invited to those meetings anymore. And then you're going to find out at the same time as your customers. That happened to me. <laughs> yes, that I have definitely learned that as well. And the best thing is, and even sometimes you have to reach out to the different lines of the business and let them know, just reach out to me. I don't want to stop anything. I want to be an advocate for improving the business. Just help me protect the business. That's all I ask. Yeah. 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 Help me help you, please. Yeah. So now let's dive into I mean, what those of us fraud nerds think is the fun stuff. The type of fraud that you and your team see on a regular basis or that you're working with your customers on. I know, especially in crypto, a lot, there's just so many scams and schemes targeting crypto consumer or consumers that hold crypto. Also, and I'm sure this more than me, I talked about it on a podcast episode a few weeks ago, but I don't stats in front of me, but I do know that a few months ago, the US at least passed a milestone where there was a higher percentage of people that held crypto than that had savings accounts. So, you know, obviously some people are, are holding it as investments, others are utilizing it, obviously with debit cards, credit cards, et cetera. So many different things that can be done, but I would imagine it would be so you're not just looking at the, the risks to your business, you're also probably looking at the risks for your customers too. So I'm kind of grouping them both in here. What are the methods and schemes, the tactics that you see that are targeting your company or your customers regularly? And and then we always love to hear one of the weirdest or wildest cases that you've seen. <laughs> yeah. It's like I mentioned, we offer so many different payment methods. Yeah. I could spend the next hour talking about each one individually and all the different <laughs> oh, yeah, ways nuances. that they're for the nuances. Yeah. But when and, you were talking uh, about that, I almost wanted to go down that road. Like, holy cow, because there are so many nuances with so many, right? Some have chargebacks, some don't, some have this, some have that, some you don't know. Like, yeah. especially when you get into international currencies and all of that. So there are a lot of nuances. <laughs> exactly. It's, ACH was 
probably the most challenging just because mm. of, I mean, you have the delays, everything's done in batches by files, and, and then the, the, you're not having the ability to essentially fight like you do with the chargeback. So yeah, you know, those, yeah those are all struggles. Yeah, there's not an automated authorization system that says, yes, there's money in this account, and yes, it's active. I mean, there are a couple of third-party solutions that do provide a little bit more insight into verifying the bank account holder and, and some of the basic information, mm-hmm. but you're right, it's not the same as credit cards for sure. So probably the best thing to cover is what we actually see, regardless of the payment method, mm. how individuals, I guess, in actually speaking with them, how the fraud ends up occurring to begin with. And I think it's it's something that actually is plaguing all of the industries where it's targeting of, you know, just individuals to begin with and different scams, whether it be some sort of romance scam, some sort of technical assistance scam. But we see that consistently where they're creating accounts. They don't realize what they're doing and it just leads to reported fraud. And we talk to them and we realize exactly what is taking place. And so on. obviously they're not the commerce that we would think of in the, in the true sense where they came in and they were on our platform. They, they signed up wanting to be a member of Buffalo, but they're still active on our platform one way or another. So that's where we see the most of our fraud right now. So it looks to you like new account fraud. It's not like account takeover, but it's scammers or or cyber criminals contacting the consumer and having them set up an account because it's part of a romance scam or it's part of a social engineering scam where if you do this, then we'll transfer this much to you or or something like that. Is that kind mm-hmm. of what the, exactly. the and, scheme and would be? Yes. And what can make it even more challenging is, I guess, tactics for identifying someone that's fraud and, you know, the, the irregularities when they go to sign up for their account. You obviously don't see those because it's the true legitimate person initially signing up and using all their true information and doing so. And then, and even in some cases, actually making the transactions, it could be them as well. So you don't have all of the red flags sometimes at any point, or it could be too late when the funds have already gone off the platform and they're out into the crypto space. And because, you know, if they're out into the crypto space, there's really not a mechanism to get that back, right? There's not a chargeback system to be able to file a chargeback. Now, if you funded buying the crypto to Uphold or another company similarly, then you could potentially call your bank and file a chargeback against that, which is one of the many reasons for your team, obviously. But This is, I mean, a lot of it sounds like it's also consumer impacted because in some ways there isn't recourse all the time. It really depends on the payment method that they use to fund the currency. Correct. Yeah. Obviously, if they're using a certain, they can have the charge back. They have that ability. They can go through their bank, you know, if it's ACH. So it's not every situation that they'll be out. But yeah, there's definitely situations where, yeah, there's no way of returning the funds. This episode of the Fraudology Podcast is brought to you by Spectrust. If you haven't yet heard of Spectrust, they're a no-code anti-fraud platform I was recently introduced to at MRC. They scan every user interaction with their fraud defense cloud, allowing Spectrust to automatically detect fraudulent behavior. I mentioned that they're no-code, which means you can get installed up and running within minutes, not needing to wait weeks for your tech team to have bandwidth or paying expensive third-party installers. Even though you can install them in minutes, Spectra still adheres to the highest industry standards, including SOC 2, 
GDPR, and CCPA. If you want to learn a little bit more, I'll be talking with their founders right here on Fraudology soon. Or you can take advantage of an exclusive offer for Fraudology listeners on their website at spec, that's S-P-E-C, dash trust.com forward slash Fraudology. Well, and to be clear, if even if they're able to get recovered and recuperated, then you're holding the loss, right? So it's just like exactly. hot potato in a way, like nobody really wants it. But at the end of the day, whether the consumer gets their money back or not, this is not a good experience for them, right? And so that's the challenge for your team. And I have no doubt at all that you guys probably in some ways play therapist a little bit in those conversations and, and try to give empathy to, to the victims, knowing that there's just, it's just insane right now. I've never, I mean... I don't think we've ever seen anything like this with so many scams. And, you know, what you're talking about are often referred to as victim assistance scams. And that is the hardest. It's so hard to identify because the actual person is creating the account, the actual person who owns that data and who, you know, is the person associated with all of that PII is the one signing up but they're doing it under a ruse or because they're being conned or scammed by an outside person. Yeah. And we actually have one just today. I spoke with a customer and, and so they, they did not create an uphold account in that way, but uphold was used to at least start this whole process for scamming them and trying to defraud them. So there was, this person was on looking for a job, used different jobs, job boards to try and, and find a new position and a fraudster apparently posing as uphold and creating a very, very legitimate site as uphold reached out to them and started the whole process going through the whole hiring piece and went through a lot of layers to do so where they had the applicant going through an initial questionnaire. They conducted interviews. They sent them documentation with posing as the company with this is your job offer. Wow. Exactly. All of that. So they went through a lot just to eventually, because it's a remote position, the end goal was to say that, okay, you needed to set up your home workspace and get this Mm. equipment. We're going to send you this money. We need your bank account information so that we can properly, you're not out the money. So luckily we have the right kind of monitorings and everything in place to to search for that. And, And we're able to have those kind of sites taken down that are representing uphold when they're not uphold. But yeah, it's just wild to think that how in-depth the fraudsters are willing to go to try and conduct these scams. Wow. That is one that I've been hearing about way too often from our community, but it's one of those that sometimes I wish I had more relationships with like media. I mean, I have some, but not a ton because these are the things that I have yet to see in the news, but they are impacting. If we're seeing it and hearing about it, it's impacting a lot of people. But so was the intent of the fraudster, the scammer to, they had to give them their bank account information to set up their like direct deposit or was it they were really focused on, okay, you need to go buy a laptop. You need to go buy all this stuff for your work from home space. And then we will refund you. We just need your bank account information. What do you think was their, you know, their goal? I think it, it was the the latter because they were even saying those pieces there to, mm. them. so that these are what we need you to do to set up your, your home office. I've heard of cases as well where they're actually having them 
purchase iPads or, you know, whatever the technology is for their home setup and their home office, and then asking them to send it to them so that they can program it with the right software for the company. That That's actually the one I've heard the most. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there was somebody on LinkedIn whose daughter got this and I can't remember who it was. So I can't remember if they're like in fraud or kind of tangentially, but I know that they were like, wait, why would we send it? So they called the actual company to say, hey, can we just drop this off at, oh, no, actually, I think the story that you said was that they told, talked to the fraudster and said, hey, we feel more comfortable dropping it off at, you know, your office location. And they were like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And then I can't remember exactly the what happened there, but he was like, there's something wrong. But the fact that this is happening so much and that there's investing so much time and so many layers to have the interview process and that, gosh, just the emotional toll that that has to take because there are so many people looking for new work and they are so excited. They got an offer letter and telling their friends like, I'm going to be able to pay my bills. Everything's good. And then not only do you not get the job, you're bank account cleaned out. That is just infuriating. Yeah. Or the, a similar scenario. What if they leave their job? What if they put in their notice in the, at the current job oh they have? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Oi, that's, that's tough. And so that wasn't even really using you guys, but it was, I mean, it was, but not your systems and your rails, but using right. the reputation as a good employer that you have to try to scam them out of money. Oh my goodness. That's just awful. So are you seeing more new account fraud, uh, new account schemes targeting consumers than you are seeing account takeover schemes targeting consumers, like with phishing scams or you know other pieces where they're trying to get their login information? Or is it more these type of scams, whether it's romance scam or job scam or others to set them up to then transfer currencies or different it's, you know, payments? Yeah, I would say it's we still are leading with the new accounts fraud, but the ATO fraud has definitely picked up over the last, what I'd say, year to 18 months. So it's not at the same level, but it's quickly pushing up. I would totally want to dive into that more, but I know that actually I'm, I'm even more excited about jumping into this next section. So, you know, I did just want to kind of ask from your perspective, because you have, I actually really admire your desire to take on a challenge in each position that you've been in and wanting to grow and really go into new business models, right? And new new areas. And there are a lot of differences between e-commerce and fintech and the risks can be higher, the margins are lower, just all the things, right? And it's instant versus when you were at HSN where like you said, you had a shipping address, et cetera. There are a lot of people in the industry that are thinking about making that kind of move, right? Whether it's from e-commerce to fintech or crypto specifically or vice versa or from banking to crypto or all those things. So, you know, what are some of the biggest differences you've noticed between the two sectors of online commerce and crypto or fintech? And I think the biggest would be your margin for error in making sure that your fraud, your friction points are accurate. You know, not to say that when, when we were in the e-commerce space, there wasn't that we just made any rule without any kind of thought to it. Usually but pretty database, yeah. Yeah, but it's maybe it's just because at, at Apple with, with how we've grown 
over the past couple of years and the need for making sure that we maximize revenue. We really have to make sure that we're making the right decision when we add friction or we're closing, especially closing customers' accounts. Oh, yeah. That we're not making the wrong decision because obviously any account closure, you may have some of those that ask, why was my account closed? But there's so many that could just, they're okay, I'm going to go somewhere else. So you don't want to make that that wrong decision when you're trying to grow as much as we are. And I think this community is also very vocal. So you want to make sure you're also making the right decisions to to not negatively impact it and just make sure that everyone has a good customer experience. Yeah. When you say this community is vocal, do you mean like the crypto community specifically or just or consumers when they feel shut down? Or do you mean like actual fraudsters where they're complaining as well? Honestly, all of the all above. The above? Um, yeah. <laughs> I got to see your face. Nobody else did. So that's why I got to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely the, the crypto community is quite vocal, you know, as it should be very active on okay. social media. Uh, yeah. But because of that, we, the fraudsters are just as vocal because if they realize that that's a way that they can be heard or even just be disruptive, they'll do mm-hmm. so. So it's, it's having to, to balance that. It's all about balance, right? Because brand reputation is so critical, especially in the age of social media and others. And people, somebody reading a tweet or something like that doesn't know the rest of the context, right? Doesn't know what that customer or not customer was doing to get their account closed or all those other things. But you need to balance protection of your company with protection of the brand and allowing your consumers to have a easy and frictionless, good consumers, easy and frictionless experience. And I know in fintech, especially in just other pieces of that, the margins are so slim that it is so important to get it right. And that can feel like a lot of pressure and, but also can be, it's achievable, right? It's not unrealistic, but it does require Require looking at multiple pieces of information at all times and really being thoughtful and intentional, right? Of thinking through the impact to the customer and not just thinking about protecting the company. There has to be a balance in all of it. So this is the part I'm actually really excited to talk. I mean, I obviously I can, I feel like we could have much longer conversations on all of these points. And sometimes it's really hard for me to narrow down what to talk about with someone. So I'm hoping that you'll want to come back after this because there's at least one other topic actually a couple that I you know would really think that you could uh, add some great insights into for the community but this one I is something I haven't covered before really intent like specifically, but it's something that I know career development is really top of mind for a lot of fraud fighters. It's something I've last several episodes of of fraudology have been, you know, on different aspects of career development and career decisions and all of that. And especially right now, because there's just so much movements and and shifts in the job market. So you've worked your way up the management ladder over the last decade of your career. And so I'd love for you to share, you know, some of your experiences in these transitions. Like, for example, what are some of the biggest differences between being a fraud operations manager as you were at HSN along with an uphold at first, you know, when you first started now to a director. 
So as a manager, you know, small, short question, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. As a manager, you're driving the day-to-day. So reviewing the daily workload, writing and updating SOPs, actioning within the, the fraud rules and your, and your fraud stack, possibly even handling different escalations. You know, obviously it all depends on the layers that you have underneath you, if you have different supervisors or leads, but ultimately you're making sure those day-to-day gears keep working. In the director role, trust that's, that's going to be handled by someone else and focus on the department's bigger picture. So understanding what's the department's vision for the next quarter or the next year, what risks or trends are upcoming that we need to prepare for, and then weighing the risks of each of those to know how those need to be prioritized on the roadmap. But I think the biggest thing, and it's something we were were just kind of touching on, is making sure that the fraud department isn't a blocker to the company's goals and the revenue. You've said it a, a lot in different podcasts, but making the fraud department a revenue growing department as a part, as opposed to being a preventer. So, you know, that's collaborating with the departments to minimize the friction as much as possible while still protecting the company and then establishing trust with your customers as quickly as possible so that you can open up what is offered to them as much as possible and quickly as possible. Well, and like I said at the beginning of this conversation, I mean, I wouldn't ask you these things if you didn't have a team who just like glowingly talks about how much they love working for you when you're not around. Maybe they, I hope they do that a little bit when you are around too, but I I pay them. Yeah. I forgot to ask them how much you paid them to talk about how great you were when you were there, but I do get to hear a lot of, you know, people talk about their leadership or their teams or whatever, I, I guess behind their back. Right. And it's always nice when I can just tell people really enjoy working for you. And that's, that's rare. So that's kind of why I wanted to pick your brain on this. I mean, not super rare, but it's not always common. Unfortunately, I certainly had my fair share of people managers that didn't really like people. So that was kind of a challenge or didn't communicate well or whatever it is. Right. So, and I think too, the other piece is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this is because there are some people who want to take that ladder, that the next steps, right. From supervisor to manager, director, or whatever those levels are within their current company or the next company. But more so the reason for wanting to do that is is mostly around pay, right? Higher pay, mm-hmm. higher. I mean, let's be honest, there's not a lot of us in on the ground fraud prevention. They are going to be able to be millionaires anytime soon, but, you know, make you a little more. That's their motivation, right? But then I see when that is their motivation that sometimes either the team management piece being the kind of the conduit to the rest of the business and the strategy piece, there's just, you're wearing so many different hats. You're more have the 10,000 foot view. They don't always know what they're signing up for, right? Or they don't, they're not able to manage those different audiences and different skill sets. You know, I don't know if this is going too far back on the conversation, but I know you're talking about leaders and, but I think I've really been blessed with the leaders that I've reported to. I think Mm. I've really been lucky. It's every kind of company along the way. I've reported into some really excellent leaders who, Mm. you know, I've been able to take different tidbits from and understand, you know, the right way to lead and to manage different situations. Cause I think, I think it's important to understand that that's, those are big different skill sets. Like it's one thing to know how to manage and understand the right way of how to do things operationally, but it's another thing to actually lead and inspire individuals. So and my, my current boss, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, it's just because he's my current boss, but I learned the most from him. He's really, really helped in my career growth, just being able to take tidbits from him. 
That's amazing. And and to be honest, I am selfishly jealous just for myself only because I had the opposite experience of having management that I was like, I don't want to be like you. So I'm going to be a different kind of leader when I manage my own team. But I think we all have different things, but it is such a gift to be able to learn from people. And I think all that humility piece, I ask, I mean, here's just a great example, right? Like I ask you like what skills and all that stuff about being a leader and you tie it back to the leaders that you've had before. You're not. And I think that there is something, I mean, that in my mind, the term servant leader has been well overplayed and I don't like it, but I do think that there's something to be said about someone that genuinely cares about their team and that wants to lead them and also that wants to learn from their leadership as well. And who it is, you're balancing, you're like literally balancing plates, right? Because it's spinning plates at that, because you've got the people management part, you've got the process management part, the systems management part. And then that's just your role as the leader of that team. But then you also have this piece where you need to communicate out with the business, as we talked about earlier. And I just, I think my point earlier was just that I think that too many people might be chasing the leadership path because they see the higher salaries, but maybe don't understand the gravity of what they're taking on. But then there's other people who I think should be pursuing leadership roles and are intimidated. So, you know, there's this in between, but I guess getting back to the questions a little bit, did you, and and you kind of answered this, but did you prepare for this transition or was it, you know, a new role that you needed to be in for a while to adapt and roll into? Like in hindsight, is there anything you wish you had learned or training that you would have sought out before the transition from manager to director, like to prepare for it? (laughs) So it's always 2020, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's Uh, why I like to ask these questions of people that have been through it. Yeah. But initially preparing for this, or or I guess it was a little bit of both. I was doing a portion of the role prior to any actual title change. That's just what what happens with a small company and a small department and a growing company. Yeah, you created the department and were managing it. So you had to do some director duties because there was no one between you and your, Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So learning to handle those more elevated situations in real time, the growing and my learning that continued even well after my title change. It's still continuing today, whether it be different feedback or attending conferences or collaborating with my peers, there's always something to learn or how to be more prepared and ensure different initiatives run smoother. But uh, I guess in, in, in looking at specific trainings, I think I feel like that's always something People seem to, you know, love a good book recommendation. I guess the actual brand, I don't even know if it it truly exists, but it should. But I guess it would be communicating with those at the executive level. So Uh it's different than your typical communication trainings where you're learning about email etiquette or speech in public. This is what I'm talking about specifically to people with a chief blank officer Uh as their title. So because you have to, everything has to be done a little bit differently in those. Their time is, is going to be quite limited. So you don't want to keep them around more than you need to. So right. if it's an email, keeping it short, maximizing the details, thinking that more than likely they're going to be reading it on their phone and probably going through a lot of other different emails. Yeah. Same with presentations. If you're presenting to them, keep it brief and look for areas to create discussions with them. Because hmm. I, 
I've been presenting to our exec team in the past and been halfway through it and just found myself realizing I'm even boring myself. I can't oh. imagine what is going on. <laughs> so it's just... Well, no, I've been there too. Yeah, of course. As somebody who rambles on a fairly regular basis, I also have those thought sometimes so i can i get it like so yeah self-awareness yeah so that's because yeah i would think yeah and boiling it down to what they care about right and communicating the impact and the value like why it matters to them and that piece is going to be different for the cfo than the the cmo than the ceo or the ceo like they're all going to that piece of why they need to care is going to be different actually i mean anyone who's listening this far is a phrenology fan so i'll say that you are not the first person who has said that this needs to be a training and I may be aware that there's something that will be coming out in the next few months in addition to the podcast on this topic specifically because it is something that needs to exist. So yeah, I'm excited about that. And I will share a little bit more with you last night, but as I transition fraudology to help the community in other ways, that is something that is an immediate need that I see in the industry that could actually benefit everyone in the industry, not just the merchants and the fraud fighters and the leaders, but the bigger ecosystem, because the better that we collectively within companies companies are at explaining the impact and the value of fraud prevention, the more open and understanding leadership will be, oh, okay, I get why you need to replace this tool, or I get why you need to add this or do this, or just, I trust you, right? I'm giving autonomy and budget, not having as many budget constraints and, and all. So, I mean, thing that I have been passionate about too, so it's validating, but at the same time, I think that it's really valuable for you to share that too. So I happen, like I said, I happen to know from your employees that they think of you as a great people and fraud leader, which is probably one of the best endorsements a people manager can receive. And like I said earlier, it's not always the case. What are some of your core philosophies and or values in leading people as a director, especially when it comes to some of the nuances of leading a team in fraud detection and investigations? We can be a passionate bunch. We can be very detailed focused and aren't always looking at especially analysts or or even supervisors and managers can get so in the weeds because they're on the ground, right? Versus, I mean, just going back to what you said about the difference between a manager and a director, I feel like it's kind of like, I mean, it's almost football season in the US, like American football. And I was, my husband and I have been watching Hard Knocks, like everyone else, I think in the, in the US. And I was just thinking about fraud fighters and analysts to me are like the players on the field and they're seeing what's right in front of them. And managers are the coaches on the sidelines that can see more but they're really focused on the game and the ground game. And then by your description, I was kind of picturing directors as the coaches that are up in the stands, right? Or not in the stands, but like in the box seats with the binoculars and the microphone and the whole thing. And they're seeing that 10,000 foot view and they're seeing all the different players and pieces. And so there's just a lot to it. But what are some of those nuances of leading them? And then, because I just need to ask one more question in this, uh, what advice do you have for others who may be in leadership now or aspiring to be? Like I said, easy softball question. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess in looking at all of that, I guess the, the main thing, and this doesn't even probably even just with fraud, but just leading a team. It feels weird even saying because to me, it just kind of seems second nature. That it's, But taking pride in your team's success. And it's funny you use that analogy with, with hard knocks and, and with football, but it's in that sense, it's quite similar. You, If your team is the players, you want to put them in the situations and give them the opportunity to shine and to continue to learn and grow. And 
kind of focus on the things that they want to focus. So you have someone who wants to continue to progress and be a leader, help them learn and grow in that way. There are plenty of people though, that are shining on the team that just don't want to deal with the leadership role. They want to continue to dig into the data and continue to just get every kind of certification and just learn as much as possible. Continue to facilitate that and just make sure that you have your team is the ones who shine and don't just because you're the leader of the team that you're not the one presenting allow them to have a voice and to also be able to present what they've done as well so well said as far as developing the people that you have right because when they're doing what they love they'll do their best work and they'll be passionate and engaged and loyal and taking their their strengths and all of that and then also asking for feedback and I think something else I've taken from just this conversation with you is that team feeling right nobody feels like they're on an island like we're in this together <laughs> it's almost like yeah. sometimes I think that frog fighters are like and I not say this to like lessen how I can't even imagine what it would be like, but there's this term battle buddies, right? Like with, if you're in the military and at a much lesser scale, it sometimes seems we're just kind of all survived all these things together. And so there's camaraderie, but not every team is like that. Sometimes they're disjointed or disconnected. And it does feel like that's important to you of just having that camaraderie and all going in the same direction or similar direction. Yeah. I mean, camaraderie and passion for preventing the fraud and looking to do what's right for the customer and the company. So yeah, if you're focusing on on building the fraud team and, and your investigation team, I mean, that's at least what I look at as a number one trait when I'm trying to hire is, do you have the passion for, for stopping the fraud and working in this environment? Because then you can kind of, everything else can help fall in line if they have that passion. You can train them and, and give them more items and they'll be more willing to take that on. They'll feel more honest. But if the proverbial shit hits the fan, they're the ones who are going to really put their head down and you're going to rely on to help get you through the week. So that is, I think, would be the biggest trait in building a fraud team. Is something that I want to dive into too, but I have taken a lot <laughs> of your time today and I just, I really appreciate it. And I really do have like two or three other topics. I would love to have you come back and discuss another time. I really appreciate all your time and you and your passion for, I think somebody just said on LinkedIn today that fraud fighting is a contact sport. And I think that's why I was thinking about the NFL analogy, but it is true. And it's not without its scars and bruises and other things, but it is. It is also, it's more, it's more than a job. It's more than a career. It's almost like a calling, which anyone else who's not a fraud fighter who think, listen to this is like rolling their eyes. Okay. <laughs> but, and I'm not saying it's the same as going into priesthood or something like that, but you do have to like it. You do have to enjoy it. You yeah. do have to have passion because it can be thankless at times. It can be exhausting at times. It can be really hard not to lose faith in humanity when you're talking to victims of victim assisted scams or other, you know, this, oh, the victim that you talked to today, you know, about the career scam, it just, it breaks my heart and those things are hard, but then that's also why that team environment is so important because you are all in it together and you can talk it out and you understand a lot more. You don't have to, the person doesn't have to explain all the backstory like they would to their spouse or their friends or anyone else. You can just say the thing and get it out and everybody kind of understands because they've been there too. But this really has been such a fun conversation and uh, again, really 
appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences, like maybe not even 1%. You really have a lot of valuable experience and insights. And I think that you're very thoughtful in your approach to things, which I always enjoy learning from, from people like you in that, in that way. Well, Rob, this has been such a great conversation and I'm serious about doing it again. And I really think that we all have different experiences and the value in that is sharing it with each other. So I really appreciate your willingness to share just some of your experiences. I definitely enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on this. And uh, yeah, I would love to come back anytime in the future. We will get that scheduled soon. So it, you don't end up on my list again. To get but thank you again. I am really so grateful to gotten the more we talk, whether it's on the podcast or not. I'm just I'm grateful that we were introduced to each other or kind of nudged in the right direction by our mutual contact. And I'm really proud of the work that you guys are doing because it is so high risk and it's pretty impressive. So thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.